Hey, and welcome to another episode of Free the Geek FM. Now, this episode is not one that I recorded recently new. This episode I actually recorded a little while ago, actually a few years ago, with a wonderful gentleman named Andre Breslav. I believe I have pronounced his name correctly. Now, Andre is the lead language designer of Kotlin at JetBrains. Now, the wonderful gentleman was kind enough to sit down with me some years ago and share so much information which you're going to hear in this episode. But me, I was a bit of a slacker at that time, and I think I'd kind of felt that the podcast just wasn't going anywhere, or I wasn't clear on its goals and whatnot, so I just kind of dropped the project and didn't publish the episode. I, this is my official apology. I feel really bad about doing that. I feel it was very unprofessional of me to do that. Uh, so in the spirit of... Andre was kind enough to share his time with me, I still want to get this episode out. So that's why I'm slotting it in now. So I hope that my apology is clear. I hope that you still get a lot of value out of it. I'm absolutely dead set certain you will, even years later a couple of years later, um, though some of the things that he plugs right at the end are out of date. That said, I left them there just for complete, um, complete completion, for completeness of the episode. Anyway, I'll stop waffling. Here, just before the intro music, is a snippet of what's coming. Uh, so our focus when designing Kotlin was uh, making an industrial language like a a really modern tool for industrial programming. So we were initially from, from the very beginning focused on like bigger projects, long-lived, uh, maintained by teams of people. Uh, so we pay a lot of attention to tooling, to type safety for these reasons, uh, for example. So I'd say uh, Kotlin, Kotlin's focus is being a programming language for your day job and fun time. If you want to learn the essentials of developing and deploying applications with Docker Compose, especially if you've been struggling to figure out what you need to know while Googling, searching Stack Overflow, and various other forums, then you'll love Deploy with Docker Compose. It's a free book and course that teaches you the essentials of building images and deployment configurations, tagging images, and pushing them to remote container registries, how to debug applications running inside containers, how to debug containers when they don't work as expected, and how to deploy your application to a production environment or any other environment using Docker Compose. Now, it doesn't cover every possible Docker command, nor does it go absolutely super duper deep in depth about anything that you could know. It just covers the essentials that you need to know so that you can deploy your first application with confidence. And you also get a host of supporting information, tips, tricks, and pointers to help you out when you get stuck. Check it out today at deploywithdockercompose.com. So what actually got you into software development? Because I was having a look at your LinkedIn profile and at your website, and it looks really extensive and really cool. And I sort of saw back, where are we? Um, between September 2011 and 2013, you were teaching programming to high school kids. Yeah. So I was just curious as to sort of how, like what got you into software development originally and how it kind of that then led you to where you are today. Uh, I guess it started when I was um, maybe in eighth grade or something. Uh, a friend, a school friend, gave me a floppy disk with a uh, QBasic, QuickBasic, uh, the Microsoft uh, programming environment for MS-DOS. And I only had a fairly outdated machine at home. It was um, a 2D6 uh, running, I don't remember, some very outdated version of uh, MS-DOS. But I could program that with, uh, with BASIC. 
and I didn't even have much information on how basic worked. I had like two pages and some kind of very old book I found around the place, like around my, my mother's house. Uh, it was like an old Soviet textbook on basic programming, it had a little basic, like two pages. So I learned an if and a print and something else and started like doing simple programs, it was very fascinating. I didn't know how to stop a program, for example. If I, if I got into an infinite loop, I had to reboot my computer. <laughs> but, uh, over time, I learned things. And uh, fortunately, it, uh, the um, environment there had a, a Russian help. Uh, I didn't read English too well then. Uh, so I could, like, I, I was actually reading it uh, top to bottom, like function after function after function. And I, in a, maybe a year or something, I got to, into writing some animation, some some other like fun programs, and uh, I learned how to print things and the printer and so on and so forth. So it was uh, very interesting. And then um, somebody else gave me uh, well when I got a better computer, somebody else gave me a book on Delphi, mm-hmm. and that was the real start of of some more serious programming because I learned about more. Uh, uh, up-to-date technologies and started writing Windows programs and it was well I think I used Delphi for a couple of years and uh, like learned every corner of it that I could reach to okay so what it was a real like like this was that moment so to say that sort of I don't know, change your life sounds a bit kind of a bit corny <laughs> a bit cliched but kind of it, it really like led you down that path it kind of kicked off that what love of developing I guess, yeah, it was, was some, somewhere very early on when I uh, just felt so fascinated with um, sending commands to the computer and it doing things I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. So it was so, somewhere there, maybe with, with that basic, or even before that when I was doing some basic things in the command line, uh, this was where, where it caught my interest, like for real, and I could spend hours doing it. So it was some, some time when I was, I don't know, 14 maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, later on, I just I just figured I was spending so much time programming uh, things for fun uh, that I should try to uh, go to university and do software development. And gradually, I learned more and more things, read, read books, so on and so forth. So it was like naturally extending from there. Okay, what were one of or a couple of the the books that on on software development that sort of most impacted uh, the way you think about it and how you have become a developer? Yeah, I still think that that first book on Delphi was uh, very influential because it explained uh, object oriented programming. Unfortunately, I don't remember the author's name. It was a very hands on um, thing with with like many examples, and it was great. After that. Uh, uh, I read uh, different things, but uh, I guess I, I learned a lot from classical uh, works like the Gang of Four books, Book of Patterns, mm-hmm. and then uh, Fowler's Refactoring, and uh, this object-oriented analysis and object-oriented design by Grady Butch. So, so those were really interesting to read because uh, they were kind of structuring my experience I already got myself like I did uh, so many mistakes writing code and reading like reading the uh, standard library code from from the Delphi libraries I was learning things by experience and then reading those, those books it structured my understanding a lot so it was okay. it was great okay um with a I guess besides uh, coming through the books with a sort of particular sort of people that that mentored you or sort of helped um, grow your understanding and and mature your your approach to software development and design so i wasn't that lucky to meet a like a real mentor some someone who had like uh, systematically mentor me but uh, my first co-workers from my first job uh, i got when i was i think in the fourth year at the university uh, I got got a job with Borland uh, working on the together for Eclipse project and I had great teammates and especially so one guy we, we just were, were, were the same age um, he started earlier than I did and knew a lot more than I did um, his name was Vitaly Ripieszko he's now immigrated to somewhere Canada I think or somewhere else uh, yeah so I learned so much from him in like one year Mm-hmm. I, I can still like I can still trace a lot of things I know and rely on now 
to our conversations back then. So it was was very enlightening, like those long, long, uh, interesting conversations and like trying code here and there and so on and so forth. That was great. Okay. Um, were there sort of particular like like examples of, of things that um that that you learned through that? If I could ask. Oh, I guess. I learned a lot about uh, how compilers worked and, and languages in general because uh, uh, there we, we were working uh, actually on an interpreter for some uh, domain-specific language. Uh, so, yeah, I learned a lot of how, uh, how you go like from a parse tree to all the other structures in practice. Like I knew the theory, but like how you actually program that, how you do co-completion things like that. Uh, there was a lot of things uh, guys just taught me there and uh, also how to write production code. Like before that, it was all my fun projects and, and there there was a lot of lot more discipline like uh, doing proper like versioning, like I mean version control um, and uh, just, uh, you know, writing comments where they are actually needed and nowhere else and so on and so forth. There, there, mm -hmm. there were many things. Okay. Wow. This is all really fascinating. Um, okay. Just looking down the list of questions for, for something to, to follow up on. I sort of got quite lost in that. Um, so I guess of, of all those things, what, what at least over the, the years or maybe sort of, sort of now is, is the favorite kind of, of, uh, of, of program that you like to write? Because you sort of mentioned fun programs and then more production programs. So is there a particular form or style of programming that most grabbed your attention? I, I guess as the, the lead language designer, perhaps that answers that question, but I thought I'd ask anyway. Uh, well, actually, my even my fun projects uh, from, from my childhood were intended to be somehow useful. So I guess the first thing that's fascinating is usefulness. I like writing things that, that I can use for something or some, somebody else can use. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, some, some of my projects that I wrote as a schoolboy, were flowing around the internet uh, for years, like utilities for Windows registry settings, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so it, it was like, I actually wanted to make programs that looked like programs I, I used like from, from real uh, software developers. And I guess the usefulness is the driver now, and also challenge is exciting, of course. Mm. Um, like when, when something something is doable like i can't feel that it, it is doable but it's not straightforward mm -hmm. uh, that's great and uh yeah as you can guess from from my position most things that i work on are somehow programming languages and even now i have a side project where uh, i worked on uh, basically a framework for chatbots on facebook mm -hmm. uh, and even there it turns out that the best design I could come up with was a small programming language inside this framework. So yeah, I guess it's my curse my inkling. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess there's that, there's a lot of consistency there. Um, how, oh, yeah. how did you, how did you come to be at JetBrains and then I guess ultimately working on Kotlin? Oh, yeah, it, th that was a funny story actually. Uh, so I went after the university, actually while in, at the university, I started teaching uh, first high school and then uh, also college courses and uh, some, some other college level courses. And then I entered PhD school here in St. Petersburg and I was doing uh, some research on domain specific languages, um, not very successfully, but still I was like working on it, writing papers, writing some prototypes, so on and so forth. And at some point, uh, my former boss from uh, Borland, uh, who at that time already worked at JetBrains, just invited me over, told me that people at JetBrains were uh, like thinking of doing new things with programming languages. I, and I knew that JetBrains was, uh, um, had a very interesting project, MPS, uh, exactly in my area, domain-specific languages. I knew the product. I, I knew the ideas. It was great. And, um, but what, what he described to me was kind of weird. I was like, okay, maybe if I just go there and talk to them, they will not make some mistakes that I know up front uh, it's, it's no point in doing. Mm -hmm. So I just came to chat, basically. And it turned out they, they told me that I were going to make a new programming language. 
like a general purpose one and something I didn't quite expect at that time uh, as far as I remember or, or maybe they, they told me before I came but it doesn't matter so in any case it was, I was like oh why would you do that mm-hmm. and uh, so, so I was very skeptical in the beginning but in two hours uh, they actually persuaded me that there was a real need uh, in a new language and that JetBrains was in a position where they could market the new language so that it gets some adoption uh, and I was told, and uh, I think I spent many hours that day. So I came in some some time in the afternoon and, and uh, left the office like very late at night. And uh, that was the day when we actually threw in some initial ideas that uh, later uh, went into the design of Kotlin. So it was uh, quite a head start. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so we, we did... Uh, oh, like I, I went from uh, no way this is a sensible idea to oh yes let's do it here's the initial design uh, yeah so that was a fascinating start I guess that must have been some conversation yeah it was I was gonna say like to to make within that short period of time such a significant transition or, or change in your perspective yeah I guess. Um, I, I think I consider this one of my uh, stronger sides. I have strong opinions, but if I, uh, I'm i faced with reasonable arguments, uh, I wouldn't just stick to my previous opinion for the sake of it. Uh, I can be persuaded otherwise if, if I'm wrong. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Like I, um, I'll say, I have this conversation with some, some friends here. And I'll say, like, but why don't you do it this way? And I said, well, look, if you can, conv- if you can give me a reason that I can, I can see, that I can say, you know, doing it this way is better than how I do it. It's more effective, more efficient. I'm happy to change, but if I don't see that, then well, why would I? Yeah, makes little sense. Yeah. Huh. Um. So, with regards to Kotlin, and I and I am not going to attempt to say that I am any kind of expert at it. I am quite new to it, but from what I've used so far, I I do quite like it. Uh, what do you feel like it's it's best at solving, like besides being like better to write in than Java, <laughs> um, <laughs> where do you feel like its its focus is? What's its thing, like its reason for being? Uh, so our focus when designing Kotlin was uh, making an industrial language, like a, a really modern tool for industrial programming. So we were initially, from the very beginning, focused on like bigger projects, long-lived, uh, maintained by teams of people. Uh, so we pay a lot of attention to tooling, to type safety for these reasons, uh, for example. So I'd say uh, Kotlin, Kotlin's focus is being a programming language for your day job and fun time. And, and uh, as, as far as possible, making your day job a fun time, too. Uh, in terms of uh, applicability, like to particular technical uh, problems, we're actually trying to make Kotlin uh, as widely applicable as possible. So it's it's good anywhere Java is good, uh, which is a very wide range of applications. So server side is Java's strongest side, but also can do desktop uh, and embedded and whatever. Uh, but we go beyond that. Mm, we compile to JavaScript to enable web programming front end and uh, with Kotlin native we compile to multiple native platforms uh, enabling direct uh, embedded programming uh, native programming for all kinds of platforms like Linux code uh, Mac OS code iOS code any sort of um, code like that so you can write uh, for example mobile applications in Kotlin both for Android through Kotlin JVM and iOS for uh, through Kotlin native and uh, also, for example, you can do uh, compile Kotlin native uh, to uh, WebAssembly and ra- run in the browser bypassing JavaScript. So uh, we're trying to make Kotlin relevant everywhere uh, where a high-level language is relevant. So I don't think Kotlin is any sort of competitor to C because C is like a lower, uh, deliberately a lower level of abstraction tool. But on the, the high level, uh, Kotlin should be relevant everywhere, uh, if not today, tomorrow. Okay. Um, and in respect to like the other, if if I could sort of be so bold, the other language at the moment, Go, 
How do you see the two of them, like sort of in in comparison, and then also in contrast? Like, like, could you sort of okay. make a, a what would you say like a, a back of the napkin comparison or contrast between the two? Yeah. So, so uh, a disclaimer: I'm not an expert in Go. I've uh, looked at the design quite a bit, but still, uh, I may be wrong about some things about Go. But my impression is that. Go is deliberately a very small language, so they left out uh, most abstraction mechanisms. So many things that are in the Go standard library, for example, can't be expressed in Go, which is a deliberate decision. So uh, many people say that, and and I quite agree that languages language design is about what you not not what you uh, uh, put into the language, but what you leave out. And uh, Go leaves out a lot of things. So uh, famously, it has no generics. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting. So the result is um, a very learnable language. It's fairly small. Uh, that's great at solving the tasks it can solve. Uh, and just uh, some of the tasks, like writing new uh, generic data structures, for example, which is not an end user task, but a library writer's task. It's basically impossible, like you don't do it and go. Um, so in that sense, I think Kotlin is quite different. We um, designed a number of language abstractions that let people write very flexible libraries. So it's a difference uh, in our design approaches. We wanted to enable people to abstract as much code as possible uh, reasonably and put things into libraries so that you don't repeat yourself over and over again. And I think this is where Kotlin succeeded quite a bit. So that's one difference, our mm -hmm. approach to abstraction. And then uh, I guess Go is largely a closed ecosystem. Uh, I'm sure you can do some kind of foreign function interface to C code in Go, but uh, Go standard library is basically a platform that abstracts most common tasks. Uh, from the user. Kotlin uh, is more on, on the interoperability side, so we try to utilize existing libraries instead of writing our own. We do our own libraries, like for Kotlin Native, for example, where uh, platform libraries are not uniform. We, we have to unify them and do something similar to what Go does. But in other platforms, we make use of the existing libraries a lot. Um, so I guess it's a, another difference in philosophy. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, and I guess there, there are many differences like this. So uh, these are not uh, like one is better than the other. It's rather like basic goals that we one of us did pursue and the other didn't. Uh, also, I think Kotlin is a lot wider in terms of applicability. So in Go, you basically do uh, like server-side stuff mostly. Like it's it's deliberately designed for such uh, such work. Like you don't do a mobile application in Go, as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it should be possible, but it's it's not like what what people do in it. So it's a, a bit more of a narrowly applicable tool. Okay, quite interesting. And that's a very concise rundown. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I guess sticking with the with the question about languages. Um, and what you've said so far uh, about Kotlin specifically, if someone was picking up software development for the first time, do you feel that Kotlin would be a good choice or do you feel that they should maybe start with something else and then lead into it? And if that was the case, what would that leading language be? Uh, Perhaps a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, there are different, uh, I don't know, different religions about how to to teach programming to beginners. Mm -hmm. I myself, when I uh, taught it at a high school, I was introducing uh, kids to programming through Pascal, which is just a tradition in Russia, basically. Uh, this is uh, what was available to me. Uh, but and, and I'm not suggesting that everybody does that, by the way. But uh, there was a very good balance about Pascal uh, because it had some sort of strong type system. Uh, so it's it's not as easy to make a terrible mistake in Pascal as it is in C, for example. But on the other hand, it has uh, manual memory, memory management. So basically, you have to understand uh, all the machinery behind your program. Uh, not so many things are abstracted away. 
And I think uh, I prefer this way of teaching programming when uh, when you get to introduce memory management, uh, like allocation, deallocation, resource management, so on and so forth, at some point, not in the very beginning. Uh, so and there was another school where you try to um, get most details uh, out of the way of the learner at the beginning and uh, introduce people to like the most high level things first and then later talk about more uh, more details. So, so for this uh, latter approach, Kotlin would be a good start. Uh, I guess uh, it doesn't abstract away as much as say Python would. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it could be a good balance. Like you, you actually get a sense of uh, your type system, some, some kind of programming discipline in terms of uh, uh, types and uh, applicability of functions, so on and so forth, which, which may be a good thing. Uh, uh, and also it abstracts away many of the low, lower level details. So there I think Kotlin would be uh, a good, good place to start. But uh, if you are more in this uh, uh, school of like starting with hardcore uh, um, uh, low level stuff, then better take. Uh, actually, I don't know what language to take now. Like Rust is too complicated. C is too error prone. Uh, like I, I've heard of people using a subset of C++ that was like very, um, uh, very carefully cut out of it so that it's like kind of a typed language that doesn't have so many pitfalls. But um, I'm not quite sure it would work as well as Pascal did. Um, so yeah, don't know what to recommend there. Okay, fair enough. It's, it's just interesting to, to hear the thought process and, and yeah. the analysis. Um, for, okay, so kind of maybe branching out a bit sort of wider. Um, what kind of tools do you use? Because you mentioned like right back at the start, like the, the early computer and, and almost sort of next to nothing. What kind of tools constitute or, or help you work on a daily basis now? Um, so for coding, I use IntelliJ IDEA, mm -hmm. obviously. It's a great tool. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I used Eclipse before I joined JetBrains uh, and uh, I liked it then, uh, then I switched to IntelliJ. It's superior in many ways. Um, some some things I liked uh, more about Eclipse. So, but I don't miss it. Like it's, it's uh, IntelliJ is a great tool. Mm. Yeah. So for code, IntelliJ, uh, uh, I use Git and GitHub a lot. Uh, for documentation, we use uh, some collaborative editors like Google Docs and Quip, and I use uh, pen and paper. For a lot and, and like whiteboard markers because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like uh, a lot of uh, work I'm doing now is actually talking and brainstorming with people and reviewing design so I don't do as much coding now as I, as I would like to mm -hmm. and this is something I'm actually working on I'm trying to rearrange my schedule so that I can code more because <laughs> now mm -hmm. it's like most of my coding is uh, oral coding <laughs> okay yeah um, yeah, so these are the um, tools I'm mostly using you know, on the day-to-day -day basis. Okay. Um, if someone wanted to, I guess, sort of follow the, the path that you did, um, they were early on in, in what would you say, being sort of in, inspired with going down the software development path. What, I guess, what kind of words of advice would you sort of give or have for them, like, you know, the, the kinds of things to do, the kinds of, um, yeah, the kinds of things to do, like how to approach it. So you, because you know, with, with, I guess with many things, there are so many sort of dead end paths. Yet, hmm. yet I guess also with many things, you've got to make a whole lot of mistakes to learn why things are mistakes and so on. I'm just sort of curious as to what advice you might give, I guess, especially in light of, as you said, you taught uh, programming to high school kids. Or, or what were the pieces of advice that you sort of gave them? I guess I do give such advice fairly often. Um, yeah, so the top one is write code, a lot of code. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the most important thing about learning programming is writing a lot of code. Uh, and then uh, the smaller ones would be uh, reflecting your code, uh, write it so that you love it. 
Like it, it makes sense to pay attention to how beautiful your code is and to be, um, how to put it, like to, to have this aesthetic uh, pleasure of looking at your design. It is very important. And, and this is, by the way, how we uh, select engineers for our team. So we try to find people that have this aesthetic sense, which, which is uh, in some sort of agreement with our own. But this, this seems to be fairly universal. Uh, yeah, so that's an important thing. And then uh, I guess another important thing is uh, just trying many things, many different things. So uh, you, you can easily become a neurospecialist very early on, but then it may limit you in, 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 in the future. So it's better to try many things uh, early and then, if you like, specialize in something very narrow. It's, it's interesting that you say about the, the sense of aesthetics because... Um, I think I've, I've spent the majority of time doing like PHP code and like amongst other things, but there seems to be this randomly weird, uh, words fail me too much German lately, um, kind of divide as to either you have a sense of aesthetics, but not necessarily aesthetics, but a, a sense of, of respect for the fact that you'll come back to this at some later time. And, you know, the, the thoughts that are in your head now won't be there then. And for mm -hmm. the ability that you will share that with other people. And so it's also easier for you to pick it up again. And it's also easier for them to pick it up versus this other weird idea of a sense of aesthetics and, and appreciation for layout is just like this unnecessary extra frippery. I, I find it bizarre. Maybe that's just from the origins of how... PHP like developed from like a series of scripting tools, but I see that a sense of appreciation of, of aesthetics much stronger in other languages, or at least it seems to run a lot deeper. So I don't know it's just really heartening that you say that. <laughs> yeah, so I I guess I I'm not qualified to comment on how PHP developed, but it seems to be uh, yeah slightly different culture in in this uh, realm i guess uh where, where it comes to uh like projects that are maintained for longer periods of time by uh you know full-time engineers that whose main job <laughs> is to maintain this code mm -hmm. uh, people develop this idea of uh, like how to write code so it's not so much of a pain to maintain and like things like refactoring and and other stuff uh, come around and uh, but th there is a flip side to it like we uh, people who have this background uh, uh, When we need to write a quick and dirty piece of code We may spend actually much more time doing that just because we write it the, the proper way because th th that's the habit Although it's a one-off thing. Uh, I won't ever run again. Not not only edit. Hmm. So I guess the, the, there must be a balance there uh, but yeah this the sense of uh, uh, the general aesthetics and uh, I don't know, some kind of uh, you know reflective attitude to what you're doing, like paying attention to how it comes out. Uh, I guess it's important. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I, I actually really, um, I don't know, a huge smile for the fact that you said you know even if you only sort of run it one time, that that same sense of of discipline and and approach to it is still put in. I know. I think I think I'm gonna like just sort of have that little sound bite, and then anytime anybody gives me a critique, I'll just play it back to myself. Okay. <laughs> and so that way, I'll you know I'll just sort of you know was it what would you say feel feel good in my own approach to things. Um, but no, sorry that that's just really grabbed my attention, um, and it's really cool that you say that. I think that it's just me. Um, given uh, the work on Kotlin, and I see where are we here? I was having a flick through the Kotlin Twitter feed, and this was on, oh no, that was late last year, that Kotlin 1.2 was here. Um, given all that work there, and I guess sort of various languages you've worked with and experienced and, and read about over the years, where do you see software development going, say, over the next five to ten? Are there any sort of key developments or changes that you see? And maybe this leads into the point of AI coming around and we'll all be out of a job. Ha ha, laugh, laugh. Um, I'm just curious as to sort of where you sort of see things going, maybe in the shorter to longer term. Uh, yeah. So uh, just a small side comment on the AI. 
so I'm in this skeptic's camp uh, where I think that uh, singularity hits the, the day we uh, can teach AI to write useful programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems like we, as soon as we automate programming, uh, as like we, we can replace all software developers by AI, mm. this is where the artificial intelligence will start teaching itself and we'll get a lot, a lot smarter than, than we are and take over the world right away. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah, so in terms of uh, the uh, shorter term, uh, it's, it's very hard to predict, of course. Uh, th- there are some things I'm paying attention to. Mm, uh, so, so one thing is that uh, we are pushing towards multi-platform development. Uh, we, Kotlin. Mm-hmm. And this is not only us. It's uh, a trend one can see. So people face this world where, where reasonable, like, everyday applications, th- things people use like on a daily basis, actually running across multiple devices, multiple platforms. Uh, like you'd have uh, your server logic running in the cloud uh, with actually different devices. And then uh, multiple clients connecting to it, uh, anything from a next server to a mobile phone to a web browser and desktop, so on and so forth. And of course, IoT is uh, also in this picture. Uh, so. The tools for uh, this or that flavor of multi-platform programming are bound to uh, dominate the world over time because this is the reality today already. And um, people actually suffer a lot uh, making those programs. So this is why uh, Colin is working on this multi-platform support. And other projects also uh, uh, come around that uh, do things in this direction, like React Native, for example, is a very interesting project that unifies um, development environment for Android and iOS, and and there are many others. Mm-hmm. So we compete with most of them, uh, and uh, uh, it's a very early stage of uh, of this. Let's call it an industry of multi-platform development. So it's it's not very hard to compete because uh, like the humanity is only learning how to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are doing our best to be uh, a prominent player. Uh, in this landscape. So that's one thing. Another thing that's clearly there is that data analysis and, and all all kinds of uh, data processing tools are uh, very important now and will become more important in the future. So, so far, it's been mostly separated from software development. Like there are software engineers that work on code and there are those uh, data analysis people that are, uh, they don't care as much about code, but care about data. So they write code, but it's different kind of code. Okay. And we'll we'll get more and more people specializing in data analysis. But I think those people deserve much better tools than they have now. (laughs) So in terms of uh, um, like programming experience and and software development uh, tooling and languages and, and everything, infrastructure, I think I think the data analysis world uh, deserves an improvement, and, and uh, the improvement is bound to happen there. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, I guess something that I, I definitely can't say I'd sort of thought about. Um, but I guess related to that, like if, and maybe I should have asked this earlier, but I guess if there was one kind of technical problem that you'd like to solve, what might that problem be? Uh, well, I guess it would take me a long time to actually find one most interesting problem. Uh, but there is one I'm uh, working on uh, now, which is a long-standing one. Uh, and it's very much related to my day job. Uh, the, the, there is a problem historically, a problem of evolving languages. Like when you have a programming language, whichever it is, uh, you want to improve it over time, but there is already code out there written in the current version of the language. So when you, you are improving it, you have to make sure not to break the existing code, and it's, it's a big challenge. Hmm. Um, like it's, it's an intrinsically difficult task to uh, change things in the language, even adding new features. Uh, and of course, there is also like fixing bugs, getting rid of unfortunate design decisions, so on and so forth. 
Uh, so all that is very difficult if you don't uh, want to break existing code. And there is a very sad story of Python 3 versus 2, mm-hmm. uh, which is still a disaster. Uh, when when basically uh, an entire community was split by introducing a new, uh, allegedly better version of the language. And uh, Python 3 has fascinating things added, but still not everybody has converted after years and years of the split. So, so one has to be careful to um, uh, evolve languages in a uh, in a way that doesn't disrupt the ecosystem uh, too much. So, uh, this is something we're looking into now because uh, we have a fairly young language that we understand we need to evolve and we need to fix existing problems and not keep the bugs around forever. For example, like some some compilers heroically do still all. Uh, like th- there are ages old compilers that maintain their bugs introduced like 15 years ago because the users rely on them implicitly, some of the users. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so we were working on uh, a policy and process to uh, somehow overcome this mm-hmm. and uh, build an ecosystem where the language can evolve uh, so that users don't suffer and the language doesn't get rusty and doesn't accumulate too much legacy and it involves the tooling of course so uh, uh, the core of our approach that's different from what other people tried is automating migration so it's like when when we change something and some of the existing code doesn't compile anymore uh, the user shouldn't be on their own with this issue there should be tooling to help them migrate with no uh, major pain so that's the goal and this is something we're working on now it's a big challenge, and we'll make mistakes on this road, but we'll try our best. Well, if I was going to say, if, even if it's something that you identify as as a priority, as something that worth that's worth working on, it, it definitely is. Is I don't know. It's, it's it's really inspiring because I see a lot, and and as you said, some compilers just we'll just keep it because it's just easier that way, or or whatever the the full extent of the internal discussions are. But at least it's better than. Uh, what I've seen in some, which is, okay, there was this uh, feature was deprecated or not um, in this release. Here's what you should do. But then it's it's up to you. Yeah. Yeah, I guess most uh, industrial compilers actually keep bugs around just because they care about their users and they have no other way of uh, not uh, breaking other people's code. So I think it's very responsible of them. Like, as far as I understand, when when C sharp compiler was re-implemented, like they at some point they uh, switched to a different implementation. So that implementation had to be bug to bug compatible to the old one, and this is pure care for the user. Mm. And I respect this a lot, but I don't don't want to end up in the same situation as they did. So I'll I'll try to build the ecosystem so that it can migrate people out of the buggy behaviors uh, and uh, unfortunate design decisions and so on and so forth without major pains. Yeah, I'm not I'm not meaning to, to sort of, I guess, sort of play down or or cast um, others in a, in a bad light. I just, it, it just seems really, um, I'm not sure for the right word, actually, but just, just that you sort of think of it and, at, at, uh, and appear to put such emphasis on it and at so early a stage in in the development cycle of the language itself. Yeah, we're, we're actually starting to get bitten by compatibility problems already. So it's it's just the right time to start thinking. It's it's a bit later than we should have, but it wasn't possible really to, to think on such things before. Well, I guess it was sort of what, there was just too many other things to do up oh, until yeah. this point. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, actually <laughs> uh, one of our problems... Uh, um, here uh, uh, with the Kotlin team is that we have uh, too many ideas. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's too many things, and it's not just random ideas. It's uh, it's too many things people need, uh, and too many things that can be improved in different ways. So we have to like super carefully select language features, not only because uh, putting too many features into a language is, is bad for the language. That's obvious. But even those things that are are worth changing or uh, adding to the language. Uh, It's just too many for our team to implement, Mm. Uh, even though we have a fairly big team, actually. Uh, 
so so yeah it's it's uh very hard to pick our priorities because there, there, there is a large group of users here and large group of users there and both need something and we just don't have time to deliver it tomorrow to both of them so we have to somehow switch priorities so on and so forth mm-hmm. uh, yeah so but, but uh, as I said before our primary focus now is um, uh, multi-platform development so we're doing uh, so we're still very um, uh, uh, serious about of the uh, JVM as our target platform because mm-hmm. uh, it's it has a lot of users both on the server side and on the Android side. It's in hundreds of thousands of people, so uh, definitely will keep uh, improving there and so on and so forth. But also, uh, those same people are interested in doing uh, programming for other platforms. Like uh, if you're doing if you're doing Android application. You're very likely to uh, want to do an iOS application with the same code, and sharing code between platforms can be a huge benefit in terms of just development costs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what's in the works now is uh, actual code sharing between Android and iOS applications, okay. which is uh, a difficult thing because basically it's uh, on the Android side, it's straightforward. We just compile down to Java bytecodes, and then the Android toolchain does everything else. But then, uh, in for example, um, iOS case, it's uh, no bytecodes we can compile to. We have to do uh, native compilation, so we use LLVM and hardcore compiler technology, uh, and we have to implement our our own runtime, so manage memory and everything. Mm-hmm. And we need to interop with uh, the native libraries so that all the existing libraries that existing APIs that um, the platform provides are available. Um, to an iOS application in Kotlin, and we've been doing a great progress there. So you can uh, today you can actually write an iOS app and uh, interop with the native code with no major difficulties and so on and so forth. So it's it's very promising. There is a lot of work to do still, uh, like integration work and tooling and, and all that. But mm. um, the technology is going to be uh, really useful. Okay. Yeah, I was I was really sort of inspired to see that as I was um, experimenting with Kotlin that it has so many options for um, what you can target. Yeah, yeah. So currently we can uh, even target like really small devices, like an STM32 controller, microcontroller, uh, with uh, like really a little RAM. I don't remember. It's like I think we fit into 200k now. Mm-hmm which is uh, not the final size. So I, uh, I think we'll, at some point we will be able to fit into uh, 120K, which is uh, like the uh, um, RAM size for very many um, modern controllers. Mm-hmm. So that's like, we, we can go even that small. And of course we can scale up to like really big programs. Cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that's that's uh, one of the major priorities. And also we are, uh, so we, we actually have introduced uh, kind of a revolution uh, over a year ago already, which is called Coroutines and is uh, largely about asynchronous programming. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm calling this a revolution uh, because I think it should change the way people write code in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm not saying we were the first to come up with the idea or that the the change has already happened. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's this kind of revolution that kind of creeps up on you. <laughs> uh, because uh, n- nobody, of course, changes like the entire approach to programming overnight. Uh, but the idea there is that um, as the world now is uh, uh, multi-platform, mm-hmm. it's at the same time uh, very asynchronous because different devices communicate asynchronously mm-hmm. with each other. And if you want to, to scale, Basically, you need to be asynchronous because you can't wait uh, for any other subsystem to answer you, uh, blocking the current uh, processor or uh, like parking an iOS thread. Uh, So everything is asynchronous already, like very many APIs. And people have to struggle with things like callbacks. Uh, and then callbacks inside callbacks inside callbacks inside callbacks, <laughs> yeah. which is very painful. Uh, and this has been addressed with um, async await. And um, uh, I think C Sharp introduced it to mainstream at some point. Mm. And then uh, other languages picked it up. And uh, we were looking initially into just introducing async await to Kotlin, but then we realized we didn't, didn't want that. We wanted a more general mechanism 
of uh, making coroutines part of the language. And this is something Go is great at. They have this uh, thing called Go routines that, that are very mm-hmm. similar yeah. to coroutines. So asynchronous programming is a very strong side of Go. And we wanted as much of that as we could um, technically afford. And, and uh, I think we ended up with a very interesting design where basically we introduced a single keyword to the language, um, which uh, like which is a very small uh, syntactic surface. But the functionality behind it is, is um, really extensive and uh, we introduced a new program, programming model uh, which allows you to write code as you do with uh, async await or go routines, just straightforward code without any callback structures or like functional abstractions or anything like that. Straightforwardly write your control flow as if it was just sequential code. Okay. Uh, and wow. it magically executes, magically, quote unquote, of course, mm-hmm. uh, executes uh, asynchronously and does all the necessary management and cancellation policies and, and, and everything for you, uh, which I think is a game changer for many people. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so, yeah. so this technology we introduced like a year ago and we're going to release it like in the next big release, Colin 1.3. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been a long journey trying things out, uh, get, getting feedback from the community, fixing things. And now we're getting ready to release it finally out of the, like, graduated from the experimental mode. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely sounds like an awesome feature. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Like, every time I write any code with coroutines, it's super fascinating. Okay, so that's coming out in 1.3. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Um. All right. Well, at this point, um, I guess we'll sort of what wind to an end. Is there anything that that you want to plug besides coroutines and and one point three? Is there any sort of um, even even if it's like a side project that you're working on or another announcement that you maybe want to allude to without necessarily saying in in too much detail? Uh, I think I'm I'm not going to announce anything uh, major here, and and there isn't uh, any like huge secret to uh, allude to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I've told you what our main priorities now are, and mm-hmm. there will be interesting details around these priorities. But uh, generally, these are like two big things we're focusing on now. Okay, awesome. Well, it's um, it's been really really interesting to to talk with you to. To, to listen and thanks again for taking the time to talk to me even though like we uh, hadn't met before i emailed you out of the blue randomly a little while ago yeah thank you very much it's been great and uh thanks for your questions very mm. interesting all right not a problem thank you very much yeah thank you and that's a wrap for this episode you can find more about anything you've heard in today's episode by going to freethegeek.fm that's freethegeek.fm If you've enjoyed the episode, I'd love it if you'd give it a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Alternatively, please leave a comment in the episode discussion. I'd love to know what you think, what you thought was good, what could do with a bit more work, etc, etc. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.